Welcome to the River Fellowship Podcast. At River Fellowship, we desire to experience God, exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage the world. This week, Lead Pastor Daryl Anderson continues his series titled Checkbox with Part 4, Check Life. God desires for us to experience life as He intended. James helps us know how to recognize and respond to the forces that seek to keep us from that life. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org. James chapter 1. We're continuing this no-name series, uh, just checking boxes. So we're going through some very practical qualities and characteristics that James lists through James chapter 1 to see if we can check that box, to say that, yes, we have that, or we want that, we need that. So far, we've talked about joy and wisdom and faith. This morning, I want to talk about life, how to experience life. And that word life that we'll look at, uh, it's from the Greek zoe or zoe, which, which means fullness of life. More accurately, my favorite definition is life just as God intended. When God created us, he had a life that he intended for us. Uh, to enjoy and and experience. And this is what that word is, the life that God really intended for us to have. Now, we know that that all begins in a relationship with Jesus Christ. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, invite him into our life, the Spirit resides in us, and he gives us that life, that abundant life and that eternal life. So it all starts there. So if you're here this morning, you've never made that decision, you're not sure you've ever made that decision, now, I'd love for you to come talk to me or one of our prayer team later in the service, and, and we can just solidify that, solidify that for you. In James chapter 1, James does not talk about that. He's, he's assuming that because he's talking mainly to believers that have been dispersed. So he doesn't deal with that aspect. Rather, he assumes that and jumps kind of to a, another topic. And for him, life revolves around trials and temptation, how to experience life that he intended for us, just in this one context, depends partly in how we respond to trials and temptations. Now, we talked about trials a few weeks ago in our first week here. A couple of months ago, we talked about temptation in our First Corinthians series, um, but dealt with God's faithfulness in the midst of temptation. I don't want to rehash any of that. I want to come from a totally different perspective this morning as it relates to life and experiencing the life that God has for us. So let's look here at James 1. We'll begin in verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Let me illustrate for you before we get into the text. I want to give you a visual uh, to illustrate what James, what I think James is talking about and what he's trying to communicate. Um, And as we go through, you can keep this visual in your mind. I need a couple of volunteers that I've recruited. Jake, first. Martin, you can wait. Jake and Dylan, if you'll come up. And Jordan, I didn't ask you, but will you help in a minute? Not yet. I know you're excited and fired up, but not yet. Okay, Jake, take 
take that in. Dylan, go take that in. We're going to do the old familiar tug of war here. So you guys tug just hard enough to tighten it, not hard enough to hurt anybody. Okay? Now, in this part of the tug of war, Jake's going to represent Satan, and Dylan's going to represent God. And what we see is this, pull it a little bit tighter, guys. There you go. What we're going to see is that these guys are opposites. They're pulling against one another in this spiritual tug of war, if it were. And then I represent us, and I'm in the middle. And so the idea is God's pulling and trying to draw me toward himself and the life, the life that he has. Yeah, I'm getting confused. That'll make a point here in just a moment, actually. So I'm being pulled toward he, God's trying to pull me toward himself to experience the life that he offers. Satan's trying to pull me toward himself for death that he offers. But he's trying to trick me and act as if he's offering life at the same time. So I'm being tugged back and forth. Now, there's a couple of theolo theological truths I have to mention here before we continue. One is, God is omnipotent. S Satan is not. So because God is all-powerful, he could very easily, with one tug throw Satan through the universe. But he has not done that. He's chosen in his sovereignty to give Satan some time of influence and impact in this world until that ultimate time where he will defeat him and destroy him and send him to the pit. So that's why there's a tug war in the first place. It's because God's allowing that in his sovereignty. Second point is, he could also give me no choice to where all I have to do, I just follow him because I'm a robot. He's made me to follow him. But he hasn't done that again in his sovereignty. He's given me a choice to choose. So that's why we've got this tug of war taking place. Now, let me add to the tug of war. Now, Martin and Jordan, if you guys would come up here with me. Tighten it a little bit tighter. You guys are getting a little weak on the pull here. Okay, these two guys now, Martin is going to represent, come up here in front. Martin's going to represent our evil desire, as James calls it, our, our fleshly craving, Okay? So he's over here on Satan's side because obviously that's part of what Satan is about. Jordan is going to represent our will. And if he's talking to believers, initially our will is that decision-making process that we've, we've decided to follow after Christ, join God, okay? Now, in this illustration, there are three constants and one variable. The three constants are God, Satan, and our fleshly craving. Those will not change. They will never change sides. They will always be where they are. There's one variable, and that's our will. And what James is trying to communicate in this passage is, in this tug of war, if our will decides to change sides and get on that side of the tug of war and start pulling with Satan's temptation and pulling with our, cravely, our, our fleshly craving, now is as if God says, okay, if you want to join that deal, as if God lets loose of the rope. He doesn't let go of it. It's another, that's another message. But he'll let loose as if he's saying, if that's your choice, then I'm going to let you begin to experience the consequence of that decision. And what happens is I begin to pull. So the visual that's taking place is this tug of war back and forth and how that involves our flesh and our will. Okay? Thanks, guys. I want you to keep that visual in mind because it'll help us understand as we kind of walk through the text here this morning. So let's, let's look at the text now. In verse 13, he says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. 
For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. We see in verse 12 the word trial. We see in verse 13 the word tempted or tempting. In the Greek, that actually has the same root word. It's in essence the same word. And it can mean test or trial or temptation. The difference is placed in the context and the one who is involved. It depends on the motivation and the expectation of the one doing the testing. So what we see in verse 12 is is God is involved in that trial dynamic, but in verse 13 when he's talking about tempting, God's not involved in the temptation. So that sentence, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, is a statement that James doesn't follow up with with a deep theological statement of, of right and wrong, good and evil, like Paul probably would have done. He keeps it very practical. But in this statement is a theological truth that we have to keep at the forefront of our mind. And here it is. God is pure good unmixed with evil. And Satan is pure evil unmixed with good. Therefore, God cannot do evil and Satan cannot do good. Therefore, God is always working for our good, and Satan is always working for our demise. Therefore, anything that God allows or initiates is purposed for life. Anything Satan initiates is purposed for demise or death or destruction or separation from that life. Now, That seems obvious to us, but it becomes less obvious when we're actually in the midst of trial and temptation, because there are times when we get in a deep trial, we did nothing to cause that. God in his sovereignty has allowed that. Maybe he's even initiated that, and when we're in the midst of the trial, it can be so difficult that we can begin to think, God must not be about life, he must not be about good, because I wouldn't be going through this. And in the midst of temptation sometimes, because it can look so appealing, it can look so good, it can look so lifelike that we begin to think maybe Satan really does have something good in store. So it can get muddy and it can get kind of confusing. But the key to experiencing life is how we handle trials and temptation. One way we experience life. So let's look at the God side of this tug of war first. In verse 12, it lets us know and indicates that God is involved in our trials. He allows them. At times, he may even initiate them. But his, remember, it's about motivation and expectation. His motivation through a trial is to sharpen you, is to strengthen you, is to refine you, is to draw you closer into relationship with himself, is to to draw you into a deeper intimacy with Christ as he refines you. Malachi 3, 3 and 4 says, he will sift as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. In other words, in this case, when God allowed and even initiated the trials with the Levites, the, the motivation was to refine them into righteousness. Psalm 66, 10 says, for you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. What we're seeing in these passages is that the refining process is purposed to remove anything and everything that would keep you from experiencing life 
that God has intended for you. It's to remove all of that stuff. And his expectation is that you would persevere and gain victory in the midst of that trial. That's why in verse 12, after he talks about persevering in the trial, he says, he will receive the crown of life that God has purposed for those that love him. It's this perseverance and trial that begins to create this life. Now, this crown that he mentions, it's, it's probably, he's probably not thinking about like a kingly crown or a priestly crown. He's probably thinking about uh, some of these crowns that were, uh, were garland or wreath, kind of woven, that they would place on the heads of uh, people that would win like a competition, a sporting event. They might be victorious in battle. It would be placed on them, and it represents victory, and honor. And that's really what he's talking about here is that his motivation for the trial when we persevere is he sent that or he allowed that so that he would prove refining and cleaning and strengthening so that we have an even deeper relationship with Christ and a stronger faith in Christ. So his motivation and his expectations for, is for life. So let's counter now the other part of the tug of war, which is Satan. His motivation is just the opposite. His motivation is to get us to fail God's standard, is to get us to fall, to succumb to this craving of our flesh and our natural desire. And his expectation is for us to fall, is for us not to be able to resist his temptation. John 10, 10 makes this, is the clearest statement of this. It says that the thief, who is Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I, Jesus says, have come that you might have life. And have it at the full or have it abundantly. So when we get back here to verse 13, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. <clears throat> the inference here is since God is not doing the tempting, Satan must be doing the tempting. Because you have this tug of war pulling one each way. God's not the one pulling us toward temptation to fulfill our flesh. That's Satan who was tempting us. Now, again, James is not theological, so he doesn't talk about the theological dyna dynamic of Satan. He keeps it practical. He talks about this evil desire. But the insinuation here is that Satan is the one who is manipulating and, and, and luring and tempting and enticing our flesh. It's like the example of Adam and Eve. Remember that story when they partook of the fruit it says that Eve saw that it was good and pleasing for food, so she took it. So it was her craving that caused it, but we know that Satan was the one tempting that craving, and that's the word picture here, that our evil desire is, is involved, but Satan is the one who's manipulating that and tempting that. So with that in mind, in verses 14 and 15, he gives us a pattern. He gives us a process of, of this temptation from what I'll call all the way from the craving to the consequence. And he gives us this process that uh, helps us understand what's taking place when Satan is tempting us and what's going on that is trying to pull us in this tug of war over here to where we are separated from experiencing the life that God has for us. Verse 14, he says, but each one which tells us he's talking about all of us. None of us are immune from temptation. None of us are immune from falling to our sinful craving. None of us are so holy and so spiritual and so godly. None of us have been believers for so long that we are above or immune falling into this process and into this sin. We can look at great spiritual leaders over the years that have fallen 
And this just represents that no one is immune to the possibility of falling prey to this process. He says, but each one is tempted. That word tempted really, in, in my mind, means that our flesh is awakened. Okay? A, a lot of times when we talk about temptation and sin, I don't know if this is for you, but for a lot of people, they automatically think some type of deviant sexual behavior. You know, it's all like sexual sin. That's part of it. But that's not everything that we're talking about. This, it, we're talking about everything in the gamut of the flesh and fleshly craving. In Galatians, it tells us, Ephesians, it tells us, it can be pride, envy, anger, hatred, lying, cheating, greed. I mean, it's, it's, it's all this stuff, okay? This is what he's talking about. Each one of us is tempted, and that temptation begins to happen when our flesh is awakened. He's trying to awaken our flesh, and it says we are dragged away and enticed. Now, this word enticed means to bait, means to lure. So he is, he is baiting us to try to get us to bite and to jump in. But he's, he's dragging us away. When I first read that phrase, the, the word picture in my mind was some pictures you see on television, sometimes movies where somebody's being dragged away by their hair or by their feet and they're, they're kicking and they're screaming, they're fighting and they're yelling because they don't want to be dragged away and so they're, they're fighting and resisting while they're being dragged. That was my vision, but that's not the vision here. That's not the word here. The, the phrase dragged away literally means to, to work in, to be at work in. And here's what Satan is doing. He is enticing you. He is tempting you. He's, he's putting this bait of something that looks life-giving. It's really not, but it appears to be life-giving, and he's trying to get you to buy it. And what he's trying to do is convince you that what he's offering is so good that you will willingly just come on over. He didn't have to drag you kicking and screaming. That's not what he's doing. He's going to try to entice you so that your will flips and you just walk over there freely. Because he's been at work in you and knocking on you and trying to get you to, to, to bite. The aspect of what Satan is doing here is he is relentless. And the temptation process is relentless. And that's why James takes some time to, to talk to us about if we're going to experience life, we have to learn what's, what's going on with temptation because it's relentless. Satan continues to lure us. I don't know if any of you watched Big Bang Theory uh, it's not on anymore. I didn't watch it very much, but I saw 10 or 12 episodes of it. If you're familiar with that, there's this character, Sheldon, who is kind of the real quirky guy. And there was a friend that would live uh, across the hall named Penny. One of the things I remember in that deal is when he would want to go talk to Penny, he would always go over there and go, Penny, Penny, Penny. And he'd just keep knocking and banging and yelling until he'd come to the door. And for some reason, that image came to my mind when I'm talking about this because it's this Satan's going, Daryl, 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 Daryl. And he just keeps pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling and, and tempting and tempting and tempting and enticing. And it's just a nonstop onslaught is what he's doing. Trying to convince me that what he's offering is good. It's like fishing for some of you that fish. You throw that bait in there and you're moving that around and you're leaving that in there until the fish eventually decides that looks so good I'm going to bite. Now, as a fisherman, you're not concerned for that fish. <laughs> you have no concern for the welfare of that fish. 
Your goal is to either mount it or fillet it. And that's the way it is with Satan. When Satan is luring you to himself, he has no concern for your welfare. He is trying to either mount you or fillet you. Because there is no good in him. And everything he does is to separate you from the life that he offers. Now in verse 15, he, he, James says, if that is successful, if I can entice you, if I can bait you, if I can drag you and make this look so appealing so that you actually bite and come over. Verse 15 says, after the desire has conceived. Now we understand conception, we're talking about birth, but that word literally means grasp together. And what he's saying is what we illustrated. What he's trying to accomplish is that our fleshly desire and our will will grasp together and unite. And once we do that, once my will says, okay, I'm biting and I join together with that fleshly craving, what it says is after that desire conceives and grasps together, it will become full grown. That word means mature. It literally means to become a pattern, to become a practice, become a lifestyle. Once it becomes a lifestyle, if it becomes a lifestyle, he continues and says it will give birth to death, not physical death. It will give birth to destruction. It will give birth to this, I mean, give birth to this separation of life. So the word picture is in this tug of war. If Satan can so, can so entice us and make it look like what he offers is so good that we willingly make a decision and a choice to join that flesh and that craving, and then we don't do anything about it. That will lead into a lifestyle of separation that will begin to separate us from experiencing life that he has for us. It's kind of like a sermon I preached way back entitled Boundary Stones. I'm not going to rehash that message, but in Scripture, God says don't remove boundary stones. Don't move them, literally, because they, they define people's property lines. But he used it spiritually to say don't move his boundary stones. In other words, God's given us boundaries in his word. He's given us what is right and wrong. He's given us what we should do, what we should not do, what we should participate in, what we should not participate in. He's, he's, tell, he's told us very clearly what is purpose for life and what is purpose for death, what is part of his plan and part of his desire and what's not part of his plan and part of his desire. So he says, don't move those boundaries. But what some people want to do is they see something on the wrong side of the boundary that is very tempting and very appealing. They want to participate in that, but they don't want to experience guilt or, or whatever. So what in their mind, they manipulate in their mind and rationalize in their mind, in essence, where they can kind of move God's boundary over here so that I can step in here and participate in this, but feel like I'm still on the right side of the boundary when in reality, his boundary never moved. I'm really living on the wrong side of the boundary stone. And then I begin to be separated from the life. Here's the truth of what he's saying right here. Life as God intended exists only on God's side of the boundary stone. And life as he intended 
only exists on the right side of the tug of war. That's why he finally says in verse 16, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived where all of a sudden you begin to think what God offers is bad and what Satan offers is good. That God is always working for your demise and Satan's working for your good. You've been deceived because that fleshly craving and the will have joined. He said, don't, don't do that. Keep it in the reality of life is through God and death is through Satan. Now, with all that said, let me finish by putting some tennis shoes on life. Because what we've said in the book of James here is all about practical Christianity. It's Christianity with tennis shoes on. So with this insight and this knowledge, how do we actually experience life? What can I do practically that will help me experience life that God has for me and God intended? Let me give you three things. This is about the most practical thing I can do and say of anything I ever say. Here's the first one. Feed your spirit and starve your flesh. Feed your spirit, starve your flesh. You know, I never can remember if it's feed a fever, starve a cold, or if it's feed a cold, starve a fever. I never can remember that. I get that confused. Unfortunately, spiritually, I get the other one confused too. Sometimes I starve my spirit and I feed my flesh. And the principle here is, if we're going to experience life as God intended, we've got to feed the spirit, starve the flesh, because the one we feed is the one that strengthens and dominates. When we come into Christ, we receive the spirit of God that's in us. We were given a new nature in Christ. Our old nature has been crucified, but we can resurrect that sucker anytime and all the time. And that's what happens when our flesh is awakened, that it's becoming resurrected. And the, the, the one we feed is the one that's gonna dominate and be awakened. So the only way to really experience life that God intended is to feed the Spirit. That's why it's so critical that we spend time in the Word, that you spend time in prayer, that you spend time meditating on God. You spend time in worship. You spend time with God's people. This is the most basic truth in all of Christianity. And if I had one message to say, if I had one word that I could share with people, it's this. Get in the Word and get in prayer. Spend time with God all the time, every day. If your entire feeding time spiritually is one hour on Sunday, you are starving spiritually and your spirit is not awakening. Your flesh is gonna be dominating and you're not going to experience life as God has intended. You have to get in the word and spend time with God. We've got tools that can help with that. If that's not a pattern for you, and we'd love to help give you some tools and help facilitate that because that's the critical length. You've got to feed your spirit and starve that flesh. Here's number two. Don't play the blame game. Don't play the blame game. Here I'm talking specifically about temptation now. When we sin, when we fall, and by the way, we all do and we all will. When we sin and when we fall, we can't blame God. He had nothing to do with it. But in reality, you can't blame Satan. This old guy, Flip Wilson, most of you don't know that name. He coined that phrase, the devil made me do it. 
Well, the devil doesn't make us do anything. Again, he's not dragging us, pulling us, screaming. All he's doing is tempting, and we're stepping over freely. So when we fall into temptation and into sin, we can't blame Satan either. It's all about us. And our tendency a lot of times is to rationalize it or to excuse it or to ignore it or act like it's not a big deal when it really is, but we can't do any of that. Whenever we end up falling and actually succumbing to that temptation, we have to own it. We have to take responsibility for it and practice that phrase that I speak all the time, admit it, quit it, and forget it. When you fall, don't rationalize it and don't go into the deep corner and say, well, God can't use me anymore. I might as well just stay in this state of sin. Don't do any of that because he still loves you. There's still grace. So just admit it, own it, and then quit it and then forget it and move on. But here's the third one. This is probably the key. You have to stay the course. You have to stay the course because the reality is you're going to encounter trials of all kinds. And you're going to have a continual onslaught of temptation from Satan. So you have to stay the course. You can't bail out. And the way you stay the course in trials is to persevere. You continue to persevere in the midst of trial, and the way you persevere is to remember that God is sharpening me. He is refining me. He is drawing me closer to himself, more intimate with himself, and if I will persevere in that trial, and if I will seek him during that trial, I will, I will discover truths about God and have a relationship with God and experience life with God that I've never experienced before. I have a friend who was a friend in high school. He's been a friend now for forever is in the Metroplex. He is battling cancer. I talked to him Friday. It's a bone cancer. He's, I talked to him Friday um, and we just began to share. He talked to me about what's going on. He's been battling this now for several months. And as we talked, he began to share with me everything that God is doing in his heart, in his life, in his spirit, who he's been able to talk to about Christ, what God's doing in his, in his spirit, the, the, the awakening of life. So in the midst of struggling with this trial of cancer, he's talking about the life that he is experiencing in Christ. As his body's wasting away, his spirit is rejuvenating and reviving, and he is exploding with life. That happens when you persevere in trial and understand that God's always working for your good. You persevere. But in temptation, you resist. And you keep resisting. And anytime Satan tries to awaken your flesh, you recognize it for what it is. And you say, no, I won't make that choice. So if you want to experience life as God intended, Persevere in trials. Resist temptation. Confess and own it when you fall. And make a commitment or renew a commitment or stay true to that commitment of spending time with God and walking with Him and feed that spirit within you. Would you bow with me? Thanks for listening. We truly hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org.